0: It's around 2am on Saturday, the 26th of February, 2011. The London suburb of Blackheath has been relatively quiet all evening, with nothing out of the ordinary troubling the lone police car currently cruising the streets. A couple of late night stragglers with a few too many beers under their belts needed a nudge to go home, but it's been an easy shift. An easy shift that's about to become a lot more complicated. As they pass the end of the narrow, secluded Angerstein Lane, the officers spot a car on fire. Even for this part of London, it's an unusual and troubling sight. They pull into the lane and immediately call the fire brigade. The fire is way too intense to get close to, but the officers can see that there's no driver or passenger in the front of the Mercedes Benz and hope that this is just an act of vandalism on a stolen vehicle. It's only when the fire service has extinguished the blaze and made the area safe that police are able to investigate further. In the boot of the burned-out Mercedes, they make a grim discovery. A body wrapped in a duvet, hands bound with a length of cord, and skin burnt to a crisp. This has just become, without a shadow of a doubt, a murder case for the team at Scotland Yard. Police quickly discover that the car's registration links to a young man called Gagindip Singh of Bexley Heath, South London, and officers waste no time in sending a unit to the young man's family home. At around 5 a.m., police inform Gagindip Singh's mother, Tajinda, and his sister, Amandip, that the car has been found burned out and that a body was discovered in the boots. Not for a moment thinking that the body may be Gagindip's, But fearing that he may be involved, the questions on his mother's lips are, Where is my son? Did he do this? Whose is the body in the boot? Police have none of the answers, but they know that the first 24 hours will be crucial if they are to catch their killer. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. and he knows that he can't take his foot off the pedal until they find Gagindip and learn more about the body in the boot. The corpse is unidentifiable, they'll need to wait for the DNA results. But officers searching the area around the car quickly discover a CCTV camera at the end of the secluded lane, which provides them with their first clue. Grainy black and white footage shows two figures running from the scene, but it's so poor that it's almost impossible to tell even the gender of the people, let alone age or ethnicity. However, one of the figures certainly appears to be wearing a turban, and police ask themselves if this could be Gagindip. Police return to question Gagindip's family further. Do they recognize the man in the turban? Is Gagindip involved in any illegal activity? Does he take or sell drugs? The answer to each question is an incredulous no. They explain that Gagindip is a loving son and brother, well-known in the Sikh community, and a successful businessman already, with his own online television station. He is a well-liked and well-respected young man with a great future ahead of him. What makes the whole situation even worse is that this is not the first time the family have had to face news of a murder close to home. In 2009, while on a trip to India, Gagindip Singh's father, charingit was gunned down in a contract killing after going to challenge one of his closest friends about some rogue accounting. Gagindip's mother had warned her son ever since to be cautious of the friends he kept, as it is often the one's closest who caused the most harm. She could not have understood at the time how prescient her words were. Now, despite being terrified of the consequences, if it is true, Gagindip's family hope beyond hope that the man in the turban on the CCTV footage is in fact him and that he is simply hiding from the police. The other alternative, that he is the body in the boot, is too difficult to even contemplate. While they assure the police that he's a good Sikh boy, not involved in anything bad, the seed of terror has been planted. Either Gagindip is the perpetrator or the victim, and neither version is acceptable or even believable. Gagindip's sister, Amandip, tells officers that he was going to a party that Friday night, and he hasn't been seen since he left the house. She begins firing messages to his friends and people in the local Sikh community, but no one has seen him since the previous day. One of Gagindip's closest friends, Harinder Shoka, lives within walking distance of the crime scene, so Amandip calls him to ask if he's seen her brother or if they were together last night. Their close friendship has cooled off in recent months, but Shoka could easily know where Gagindip is. Amandip is surprised, then, when she explains tearfully that Gagandip is missing, that Choker laughs down the phone. His misplaced giggle unnerves her, but he tells her that he doesn't know where Gagandip is, and she hangs up, still confused by his reaction. Meanwhile, trying to piece together what has happened to the missing young man, DCI Elaine and his team use automatic number plate recognition to trace his car's journey the night before. Far from going to a party locally, Gagindib's car actually made its way along the M25, stopping at a service station not far before the M23. They request the CCTV footage from the service station and continue to trace his journey, only to discover he ended his trip in Brighton, some 60 miles away from his home. Why did he go to Brighton? And who did he go to see? The answer to those questions follows shortly after, thanks to a phone call to Amandip from one of her brother's friends. While the family believes that Gurgendip had gone to a party, the friend on the phone tells them, no, he went to see Mundil last night. Mundil Mahil was a girl that Gurgendip had met a couple of years before through his close friend Harinder Shoka. An A. grade student, pretty and intelligent, Mundu had turned Gurgandip's head immediately. They had a lot in common, both being devout Sikhs, both caring and interested in the community. Mundu had quickly become a close friend of his. His family hadn't always agreed with the friendship, and Gurgendip's mother had said she didn't think that Mundil was a good girl, largely because of her friendships with Gurgendip and Shoka. In his mother's eyes, a good Sikh girl shouldn't have such close friendships with young men. But the friendship blossomed nonetheless. Not long after meeting Mundil, Gurgandip learned that his father had been gunned down in cold blood in India. The tragedy hit the family hard, and it was Mundil who helped Gurgandip through his grief, becoming, in her words, more of a counsellor than a friend. But while Gurgendip wanted the relationship to develop romantically, Mundu only ever wanted a friendship and eventually began to reduce their contact. In fact, the family believed the friendship had broken down entirely after Mundu moved away to study at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. So why had Gurgendip gone all the way down to Brighton to visit her last night? And why had he lied to his family about where he was going? Already having Mundil's number, Amandip calls her to ask where her brother is. At first, Mundil denies having seen him at all. But when Amandip tells her she knows he came down to Brighton last night, the young woman instantly changes her tune and admits that he visited but never came inside. Suspicious of the sudden change of story and feeling that Mundil is lying, Amandip calls the police straight away and tells them what she's discovered. Meanwhile, the police have retrieved the CCTV footage from the service station, which shows Gurgandip in the shop, purchasing a teddy bear and some snacks on his way to see Mundil in Brighton. The clock is still ticking, and with the AMPR evidence, the CCTV footage, and the details from Amandip Singh, the team want to speak to Mundil Mahil as a matter of urgency. They head to Mundil's shared student house in Brighton, but find no one home. Canvassing the local area for information, they speak to a neighbor who gives them another piece of vital evidence. The neighbor claims to have seen what they think was some suspicious activity. They'd heard a bit of a commotion from next door the night before, and had looked out of the window to see two men carrying a bulky object unloading it roughly into the boot of a nearby car. Fortunately, they had written down the registration number. It was a match for Dip's Mercedes. With the evidence mounting, but still waiting for a positive identification of the body, police become increasingly worried that their victim may well be the missing Dip. They need to speak to Mundil urgently and put out an all-points warning to all ports in the UK in case she tries to leave the country. Meanwhile... Despite their rising fears, Gurgendip's family still waits in hope that Gurgendip will be found alive, even if that does mean he's in a lot of trouble. At around nine o'clock that evening, however, the police finally confirm that the body in the boot of the car is Gurgandip. This is the second time in as many years that the Singh family have to hear the news that one of their own had been killed in cold blood. With evidence mounting that, just like his father, Gergen Dip was also tricked by those closest to him. It's an unfathomable coincidence. But police almost immediately rule out the possibility of them being connected. DCI Elaine already has one suspect in his sights that he is very keen to talk to. And, though they are no wiser as to who the two figures are seen running away on the CCTV, they at least now know the identity of the victim. It's now 24 hours since Gurgendip's body was first discovered and still desperate to speak to Mundil Mahil police managed to track down one of her flatmates who tell them that Mundil went to meet a friend at Brighton train station on the night in question. That friend was none other than Gurgendip's former best friend Harinda Shoka. On CCTV recovered from the station police find images of Shoka leaving the train with another young man who they identify as Darren Peters, a petty criminal with a history of low level crime. Shoker and Peters are both also identified by Mundil's flatmate as being at their house on the night Gurgendip visited. So why had these three lads, all known to each other, made their way from London to Brighton separately? And how had Gurgendip ended up back in London later that same night, dead, in the back of his own burning car. With these two new suspects identified, that grainy CCTV from the camera in the lane finally starts to make sense. The man in the turban must be Shoka and the other man running from the scene is Peters. The chase is on. Less than 24 hours since the body was found in the early hours of Sunday morning, Harinder Shoka is arrested at his home in southeast London, just a stone's throw from the crime scene. Frustratingly, in interview, he refuses to answer a single question from D.C.I. Elaine and his team. Fortunately, Mundil Mahil is finally ready to talk. She contacts the police, innocently stating that she's heard police were looking for her. She asks if she should come in. When she arrives at the station, she's taken immediately for questioning. Where she admits that Gurgendip visited her house, there had been an argument of sorts and he had left on his own, safe and well. DCI Elaine has interviewed enough suspects in his time to be suspicious and doesn't believe her. He pushes her further on the nature of the relationship between her and Gurgendip. Under tougher questioning, she alleges that Gergen Dip sexually assaulted her six months ago and admits that she invited him down on Friday night specifically to teach him a lesson for what he had done. She tells police that Shoka and Peters were at her house to help her in that goal. She claims, however, that it had only been her intention to give him a good talking to and now be the end of it. She says she has no idea what happened to him since. Having been implicated in the events of the night, police scrutinized communications between Shoka and Mundil Mahil and discovered that not only had she been updating Shoka by text message on Gurgandip's progress down to Brighton that night, but there was also an 18 minute phone call between the two of them, just moments after Gurgandip's car was set on fire. And that wasn't the most damning piece of evidence against the two either. In one exchange, Shoka says, that he has done the job, and is willing to go to jail for Mundil for 21 years. He even asks if she will wait for him. The final suspect, Darren Peters, is arrested at work and brought into custody. In a search of his home, police find two petrol canisters. He too has a lot of explaining to do. It's not been two days since Gurgendip's body was found and the police already have three teenage suspects under arrest for his murder. Despite some impressive detective work to find the three suspects and charge them so quickly, it is not until the trial, some nine months later, that the full, twisted story of the events leading up to Gurgandip Singh's murder comes to light. In a trial that lasts three and a half months, the details of a sinister love triangle are revealed in evidence. The jury learns from the defendant's early statements that not long after meeting 19-year-old medical student Mundil Mahil, Gurgandip had become infatuated with her. But the young man who had introduced them, Horinda Shoka, supposed best friend, was also vying for her love and affection. Confronted with their actions, both Harinder Shoka and Mundil Mahil enter not-guilty pleas, as does the third defendant, Darren Peters. It is the prosecution's job now to unpick what really caused a bright young man to have his life taken in such a brutal fashion. At the heart of the story is the breakdown of what had been a strong and caring friendship between Dip Singh and Mundil Mahil a breakdown which began nearly six months before the night of Gurgandip's murder. In her evidence, Mundil claims that Gurgendip had grown obsessed with her and would often respond jealously if he didn't have her attention. As a medical student down in Brighton, she had a full academic and social life, and this seemed to provoke his jealousy at times. He would turn up uninvited at her flat, saying things like, If I can't see you, I'll kill myself. Sometimes, she says, it felt like emotional blackmail. She was his friend, but he wanted more. On one evening, Mundil claims she had been studying at home when Gurgandip arrived unannounced to her door again, carrying flowers. She allowed him in and they talked for a while, but she told him she needed to study and asked him to leave. She claims that he begged her to let him stay and that she eventually conceded that he could stay on the sofa but that she needed to go to her room to study. In her evidence, Mundil says that he continuously came into the room to talk to her and eventually tried to rape her. According to Mundil, she managed to fight him off, and Gurgandip was immediately ashamed of his actions and deeply apologetic. She says she told him to leave, and he did. But, she tells the court, He then inundated her with messages apologizing for crossing the line and begging her to forgive him. All of which, she says, she ignored. This alleged sexual assault was never reported, however. Mundil claims that this is because she is a devout Sikh and was worried that her community would blame her for the attack. After all, she is the one who allowed a young man to become so close to her in the first place. I thought it was my fault. I let him stay. No good Sikh girl does that, she later tells the Guardian newspaper. What if my family found out? What if the community found out? Who would believe me anyway. They would say I was leading him on. Because the attack was not reported to the police and no examination took place, Mundu has no physical evidence that it occurred. However, police did find a text from Gurgandip to a friend in which he wrote, I broke your promise and tried to rape my best friend. I don't know what to do. Help. Also, Gurgandip's continuing barrage of apologies to Mundil for his behaviour seemed to corroborate her story. As these messages and calls kept coming, Mundil's responses became more aggressive and hostile towards Gurgendip. Witness statements from her flatmates also confirm that she seemed to have developed a genuine hatred and resentment for him. One flatmate told the police that Mundu had said she was going to kill Gurgandip. In the intervening weeks between the alleged attack and the murder of Gurgandip Singh, Mundil spoke to her brother and to other friends around her before finally talking to those she referred to as her gangster friends up in southeast London, namely Arinda Shoka. The gangster title she bestowed on Shoka came from her impression of him being a bit of a rule-breaker, driving without insurance and smoking. He wasn't any kind of actual gangster, but it would be a title that would come back to haunt them both as the trial continued. As the evidence is presented, it becomes clear that Munda was aware that Shoka was in love with her, but she was not interested in a relationship with him. Still, they were friends, and she trusted him enough to tell him what Gurgandip had done, asking what they could do to teach him a lesson. It is altogether possible that she hadn't realized quite how much Shoka's animosity towards Gurgandip had grown. But in telling him about the attack, a chain of events was set in motion that would ultimately end in tragedy. Shoker maybe saw an opportunity to win her for himself by exacting vengeance on her behalf. Talking to social media, Shoka made no bones about his resentment of Gurgendip, calling him out for being a fake Sikh and accusing him of being a liar. Between Mundil and Shoka, a plot was hatched to teach Gurgendip a lesson he would never forget. In her testimony, Mundil claims she believed Shoka was bringing a trusted Sikh elder down to Brighton, where they'd invited Gurgendip as well to stage some sort of intervention to try and correct Gurgendip's attitude to women and remind him of what it means to be a good Sikh man. Throughout the evidence Mundu gives, the difference is vast between what she claims to have planned and what actually happened on the night of Gurgandip's murder. It is up to the court to decide whether the original plan was changed or whether Mundu knew and planned what would happen all along. From the witness statements they received, the interviews with the three chief suspects and the evidence they amassed in the few short days after the murder, the police reconstruct the events of that fateful night. On the 24th of February, 2011, Gurgendip received a text from Mundil, seeming to offer the chance for the reconciliation he had been hoping for. She invited him to her flat in Brighton to talk at 11 o'clock the next night. He was understandably cautious, and not just about the lateness of the suggested meeting time. He texted back, Are we going to be civil, or do you want me dead? Gurgandip may have worried that there would be more confrontation, but there's no way he could have suspected what actually lay in store for him when he got to Brighton. With the plan in place, and Gurgendip on the way, Shoker boarded a train in London, also Brighton-bound, but instead of being accompanied by a religious elder, as Mundil claims the plan had been, Shoka was travelling with Darren Peters, a cycle mechanic and petty criminal. Peters has no connection with the Sikh community, and there is little doubt that he was brought along as a bit of extra muscle. With Gergondip on the motorway, Mundil headed to Brighton train station, where at 8.30pm she met Shoka and Peters. CCTV footage from the station shows Mundil and Shoka laughing and joking as they walk from the platform with Peters in tow. Mundil then took Shoka and Peters back to her flat, where she had already prepared the ground by telling her flatmates not to come down to her basement room that night, as something is going to happen down there. Shoka and Peters hid in her room and waited for Gurgandip to arrive He knocked on the door at exactly 11, as planned, and Mundil showed him in and led him down to her basement bedroom. But as soon as the unsuspecting Gurgendip walked through the door, he was struck over the head by a tripod and fell to the floor. Mundil fled the room as the beating started, ignoring Gurgandip's screams for help. The attack was brutal and sustained, using the heavy tripod and other objects causing severe blunt trauma and swelling to the brain. Shokra even fractured his hand, such as the force with which he hit Gurgendip. Mundil still claims in her defense that she thought there would be minimal violence and Gurgendip would simply get a good talking to. She didn't, however, linger to make sure of that, nor did she notify the police when the beating started. With Mundil out of the room, Shoka and Peters continued the attack for almost 20 minutes until Gurgendip fell unconscious. Then they wrapped his lifeless body in Mundil's duvet and carried him out to his own car. Without any further word to Mundil, the two lads drove Gurgendip's Mercedes away, with him trapped and bound in the boot. Benefit of the doubts might suggest that they would only intended to scare Gurgendip before taking it back to London to have a so-called talking to from the religious elder that Mundell mentioned. Perhaps when they opened the boots and saw what they had done, they panicked and realized they would have to destroy the evidence. Without checking the body in the boot for a pulse, Shoker and Peters jumped to the conclusion that Gurgendip was dead and drove all the way back up to Southeast London, stopping off on the way to buy two cans of petrol and then parking up on a very quiet road, not far from Shoker's house. They doused the car in petrol and set it alight, staying to watch it burn for a moment before running away from the scene. The coroner's reports tragically revealed that Gurgendip had soot deposits in his lungs, which means that he was still alive when the car was on fire. Had they not burned the car, Gurgandip would almost certainly have lived. After this grim series of events are presented to the court, the defendants turn on each other. Shoker claims it was Peters who was responsible for the severity of the beating, for buying the petrol and for setting the fire. Peters denies it all and returns the blame to Shoka. Shoka, in turn, claims he never intended anything to escalate the way it did and attempts to use both his diabetes and his purported reputation as a wholesome Sikh boy to deflect blame, neither of which hold much truck with the jury. His mask slips further when giving his own evidence and coming under tough cross-examination. Flustered and obviously feeling like he is losing ground, he snaps at a pupil barrister shouting, What is your problem? The outburst does him no favours, but his case is further harmed when Mundil stands to give her own evidence. She claims that Shoka took things far beyond their original agreement and might well have had his own reasons for killing Gurgandip. She presents herself as a very wholesome A-grade medical student who has ambitions to work in the charity sector. She claims that while there was a plan to bring Gurgandip to Brighton for a chat, she was never aware of how far Shoka would take things. With the police's case strong and the prosecution unbending, There is little room for any of the defendants to claim innocence. The question for each is simply how much they had planned before the night in question and how far each had been willing to go to get revenge for Gurgendip's alleged assault. After nearly four months of hearing evidence, the trial ends and the jury retires to consider what they've heard. After 40 hours they return with verdicts for all three teenage defendants. The jury found that Gurgandip's former best friend, Shoka was the main driving force behind the severity of the attack. He is found guilty of murder. Darren Peters, while certainly not the brains behind the plan, didn't do anything to stop it and actively engaged in the violence. He is convicted of manslaughter. Mundu Mahil fares much better with the jury who find that she was not responsible for the scale of the violence that occurred against Gurgendip. She is acquitted of the murder charge and instead convicted of grievous bodily harm with intent. Gurgendip's family and the team at Scotland Yard are upset and disappointed with the verdicts, especially Mundos. DCI Elaine makes a statement outside the court, damning the leniency of her conviction, saying that, her actions were calculating, and she was at the heart of a criminal conspiracy, with Shoker and Peters, of tricking Gurgandip to Brighton to seriously assault him, which ultimately resulted in his death. All this from a medical student supposedly embarking on a career in a caring profession. When the trio returns to court for sentencing, Shoker, who had told Mundil in a message that he would happily serve 21 years for her, ends up with a sentence of 22 years. Peters gets 12 years. And Mundil, whose GBH with intent conviction could carry a maximum sentence of life imprisonment, is handed only six years. Even this, her legal team claim, is excessive. In 2013, Shoka appealed his conviction, while Peters challenged his sentence. Both were unsuccessful. Mundil Mahil also appealed for both her conviction and sentence to be quashed. She too was unsuccessful. She went on to serve only three years of her sentence, while, eleven years on, Gergen Dips' family still struggled to come to terms with the very different life sentence they were dealt. They have suffered not one brutal murder in the family, but two. Gergen Dips in 2011 and his father two years before him. Both murders have been committed by the very people who were supposed to be their closest friends and allies. There are no winners in this case. A young man lost his life in the most brutal, unnecessary way. gurgandip's family will never recover from their grief. Shoka remains in prison. His life, in some respects, also ruined by his obsession with Mundil and his willingness to kill just to win her affections. Peters, now a free man, will never outrun the consequences of his own actions. Mayo now lives a successful life as a personal trainer and works with women released from the prison system. She held off speaking to the press about the case for a number of years, but has since given her own version of events. She doesn't deny that if she hadn't have invited him down that night, Gurgendip would likely still be alive but she maintains that she only wanted him to understand what he had done in trying to rape her. Her life too has been ruined by this event and it will continue to dog her wherever she goes. She married a Labour councillor, who in 2019 was confirmed as the mayor-elect for the London borough of Redbridge. When Gurgendip's family challenged the fact that she was gonna be mayoress, Mundur's husband stepped down. Thanks to the speed and efficiency of the police investigation, all three culprits were brought to justice. Whether enough justice was meted out is a different question, but Dip's killers were certainly caught by the quick actions of the team at Scotland Yard. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, it's been called the crime of the century One morning in 1983, a gang of armed robbers crash into the Brinks Mat warehouse near Heathrow Airport, terrorize the guards, and drive away with 6,800 bars of pure gold. Worth a cool 26 million pounds, the haul is so big, it even affects the price of gold on the international market. The criminals may have just pulled off the biggest armed robbery in history, but they've also bitten off more than they can chew because now they must find a way to launder the proceeds. And that's where their troubles begin. Greed, deceit, vengeance, and most of all, violence ensue. Is there a brink's mat curse? Or is this just what happens when you steal more gold than you know what to do with? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noisa. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boira for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.